Don't get lost in the vast expanse of the internet? Try Ventoff SEO Manager instead, the Shopify app that store owners use to optimize their search engine results. Ventoff SEO Manager is your SEO toolkit. You'll be king of the hill, top of the heap, cream of the crop, so why settle for page 10? Simply put, SEO Manager allows you to change the way search engines see and list your store. Better search rankings means more customers, which means more money for you. Try Ventoff SEO today and get found. Just search SEO Manager in the Shopify App Store to get started. So of all the things you could sell online, selling art may be one of the most mysterious. At least it is for me. There's something about it that, that breaks my brain when people ask, hey, I know I'm a talented artist. People tell me I should sell my stuff. How? And then I say, I don't know. So to demystify it, we're joined by someone who has managed to turn his art into an online career very successfully. A one, Mr. John Chase. John's an artist who has developed a successful career online. He's got this incredible, unique style. And it's led him to collaborate with Disney, Monster Energy, Lexus, UFC, Famous Stars and Straps, and Hoonigan. Yeah, in 2008, he launches his own brand online, then takes a detour to work as Hoonigan's art director for seven years. Then he's left Hoonigan, and since then, he's gone back to his roots, selling art online again through his own Shopify store, JohnChaseStudios.com, and Instagram Live, which, like, utterly, it, it is fascinating and soothing to watch. I love his Instagram Lives all while bringing awareness to children's mental health. Yeah, we have a, a reasonable and charitable cause here as well. And so, this is the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster. Tech nasty. And today, we're talking to John Chase about making art, having fun, and changing lives. <laughs> Do a little, little air horn. <laughs> John Chase, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be here. No, 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 no. It is my honor and pleasure here, sir. So, okay, you've been at this for 20 years as a career. When does when does baby John Chase put pen to paper? I come from a family of artists, and it was, but it's, they never really took it to a professional level. It was always a hobby, which for a lot of people was. Because so I've been drawing as long as I could hold a pencil. I was in honors art class in ninth grade, and this is when I meet my buddy Brian Viveros, who now is an accomplished painter, artist, illustrator. He rips. Um, we went to school together. We were in this class. He was drawing just WWF wrestlers. This is 1988. <laughs> this is 88. So, and I'm just drawing Ninja Turtles because Ninja Turtles had just broke as an underground comic. It wasn't mainstream. It wasn't on TV. So I was all in the Ninja Turtles and he was all in the, into wrestlers. And that's all we draw in class. And our art instructor, our teacher got so pissed at us. And she told us, <laughs> you guys will never amount to anything in the art world doing this stuff. Cause she wants to do still lifes. That's what it was. And she was doing a very traditional way of teaching it. And we just, we zoned out. Every time there's art history, like I was drawing turtles, he was drawing wrestlers. We'd have them fight each other. So then eventually I failed honors art class. You got to try really hard to fail honors art or just art in general. You have to try really hard. I kind of gave up on art the rest of high school. I just said, oh, nah, no. man, I don't know. It's like, it wasn't something you could do. It still wasn't like, I didn't know anyone was doing it. So we fast forward a couple more years and then I was working at an industrial rubber hose company. I started as a driver and then I became a 
hydraulic hose assembler, then moved on to concrete hose. We worked on the inside sales and eventually went outside sales. I was there for eight years. And at that time I was doing art again, but I was like, I thought I was crushing it. I do one piece of art a month if I was lucky. I thought, oh, I'm just doing so much, right? But the opportunity came up. Some of my friends started working in apparel, working as artists, and they were like, they were doing it. So this what is- year, by this time, what year is this? This is 2002 now. I was doing artwork, um, hanging out with my buddy Max Gramajo, who's he was he just got a job probably like around 2002 as an in-house artist for Travis Barker's brand, uh, Famous Sergeant Straps. So Max was like, hey, man, I think you could do this because I was doing some work with him and I would hang out with him all night. So I would work at ASJ, the hose place. And at night I would go hang out with Max just to observe, see what he's doing because I was teaching myself Photoshop. I'll give myself one calendar year if I can make this transition from this what i'm doing now to working to the field as a creative person in the apparel world doing art i'll do it if i can't do in that year i'll just be like this is where i'm going to sit in this cubicle and just do this and make 50 cold calls a day to my customer or my client base that i need to go talk to right so within six months i i was able to land that position but that was me like getting off work going to hang out with Max till like two, three o'clock in the morning. Cause he's a night owl and he would just work. That's when he would be working. So I just hang out with him. I get no sleep, show back up at work at seven 30 or something the next day. And I did that for like a long time just to understand. So I eventually got the job. I just showed up and that's the, that day I learned that guess what? In the apparel world, you only use Photoshop like 10% of the time. So I had to teach myself illustrator over the weekend, which I did. <laughs> Yeah, Illustrator and it, it's vector graphics mm -hmm. uh, always always vex me. I am I really sh I struggle with vector graphics. I definitely like like photography and Photoshop speaks to me. Illustrator and vector graphics. I'm like I understand what I'm supposed to be doing here, but going from point A to point B does not work out in my favor. That was the biggest hurdle, but I was so amped to get my. This is it. I got a job now. I'm working. I here's the best part. I didn't listen to Blink One Eighty Two. I barely knew who they were. <laughs> Granted, and this is the peak. They were crushing. They were huge. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, that's not what I listened to. I was not listening to that kind of music. And I learned to appreciate it and understand how, like, they're actually great musicians. They are. They're fantastic musicians. Um, but it was, like, funny for me because I'm like, I don't know anything about it. How involved was Travis Barker at the time? It, it was his brand. So it was him. It was his lifestyle. It would be, he was still living in Corona. So we would meet up, like, once a week, every two weeks, maybe, when he was in town. We wasn't on tour. And we just go over design stuff. And so it was exciting to be there. I was there for five years. I started as a junior designer with Max. Max shortly left shortly afterwards to go follow other pursuits he wanted to do artistically. And I took over. And I went from being a junior designer, like eight, nine months later, I'm like the only dude there. So I have to sit down and do my first entire line. And I remember sitting at the desk. And I just sat there for a week and just stared at a blank screen. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So then the next week I go, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I designed this line and it ended up being the worst selling product oh, no. offering the company ever had. And the main reason why is that I had forecasted hot pink magenta for men because it was happening in the streets. There was some kids in the scene that were wearing it already, but it wasn't there yet at the mass. So when that season came out, it did horrible. Then I went and did another one to try and make up for it. And that one did okay. But when that other, but 
I had the salespeople going, dude, that one you did previously is checking now. Everybody's running it. So that went on. People ordered the, the previous season I did with all the hot pink in it, and it crushed. Hmm. So that was my first time getting in the sense of like understanding what's happening in the space and then forecasting something that was just too early for everyone. And then that was my big time of realizing, huh, you just have to know. You have to be, you have to, you can be way ahead, but sometimes you have to pull it back because the re- everyone else isn't there. So that was my first big whoops, but worked out well. That was an interesting time. So I ended up becoming the brand director for that company. We did a lot oh, of wow. cool, we did a lot of cool collaborations there. It was like the, I mean, it was, I left in 2008 and we were, I got to see when things were really hitting super hard, 2006, 2007. I was so need like just entrenched just like living this brand that i had no idea was happening to the rest of the world so when i left in 2008 basically on my anniversary of my arrival there uh that's when the collapse happened and i had no idea because i was so burned out i was be working from 9 a.m to one o'clock in the morning every day for years just to help build this company because it was it got to be massive like when I started, I was employee number eight. And when I left, there was like a hundred plus people working there. And it went from a small, like couple thousand square foot warehouse, like building to like this massive warehouse. Like didn't even know who half the people were. It was, it was incredible, but I had no idea what was happening. And I left at the worst time <laughs> you could leave. So that's so you, you left into the, uh, the economic crisis, just mm-hmm. That's about the time I start looking for a job and discover I can't find one. And that, that was why I turned to entrepreneurship because I was like, well, I don't have a choice. And so it's 2008. You've left this uh, th- this rising star of a company. What do you do then? So I decided, hey, I'm going to go ahead and freelance because I'm completely burned out. I had a, a dude. I was Howard Hughes. I didn't get out of bed for like a month. Like I was. Ouch. It was. I, fr- I was fried. It was. It was a, the first time I actually can say, well, no, I shouldn't say the first time. The first time I actually was scared about my own mental health. This is it. I will give you the dark story of it because my position there was so, I had so much responsibility. I reported to the to the one dude and I would check in with everybody else. We ha- I got, was able to assemble a huge team. We had a lot of, like, there's a lot going on. And it broke me. I had a nervous breakdown. I was contemplating suicide. I was really close to it happening. And this is the time I was like, it was about to go down. And if I have a picture, now my wife back then, she was my girlfriend, Katrina, of her. It's still on my nightstand to this day. And I looked at it, but I was really, it was gonna, I was gonna end it. Cause I, there was no end in sight. And this sucks. Um, and it sucks that this is how it go. It got for me, but it got so dark that I was gonna just, take my life at this point because it was like i didn't see how i could deal with it so the only way i could i saw a picture of her i said screw it no job no amount of money is worth me like feeling this way and and i had these problems when i was younger i've always had a an issue with mental health but when i was younger oh you're just nervous oh it's just this it wasn't something people talked about because people then it was really a bad thing to talk about like oh you're crazy like that's how it was handled so I would yeah, have there's this yeah. incredible stigma that results in this thing that uh, mental health issues. I would think everyone experiences this, whether or not they're necessarily aware of it, but we weren't allowed to talk about it. 
And if you did, you got labeled. And then it's like, well, he's crazy. You can't employ that guy. Oh, so who wants who wants to get involved with that? And so I understand that the resistance was that that terrible stigma at the time. Yeah. And I was like, and I've experienced it when I was younger. I was like five years old. I would get like so worked up and like I was super phobic around people. Like it was been going on my whole life. And it was interesting because I was such an introvert. Then I had to go sell rubber hose to people I didn't even know. I had to work myself out of it. But there's other times like I would just get so I would just it would just it would mount up so much I couldn't have a way of, of like taking care of it or just take care of myself. So I ended up leaving the company because like it was just it sucked. And I was like, hey, I'm gonna give you my two week notice. I let people know it didn't it just wasn't well received. We were crushing it. It was making so much. It was a it was a it was a juggernaut at the time. Like. It was wild, but I had to leave. So I left and I was just like, I had to decompress and it took a while. And then I tried to go get, try and get freelance gigs. I had saved a bunch of money because I was fortunate enough to be in a position where the company made a lot of money and I got chipped off. Um, so that was, that was a good thing also. So I just kind of started working on freelance. Problem is there's no work. Everyone was getting laid off all these companies. I worked for a toy company doing some like sketches. It would take like six months to get paid. It wasn't a lot of money. It sucked. And they're not, you can't, you can only beat up people for small amounts of money when the whole company is like basically crushed, like falling apart because no one was buying anything. So it was a scary time, but I decided to start my brand destroyer as it was an, it really was an art project for me to find my identity. And I'll tell you this is I did get some work and people were expecting me to, to do what I did at famous, but in my mind, I thought, Oh, that was, that was a company. That wasn't me. And I would turn in work that was just horrible. It was miserable. People even, this one dude like, oh no. And then years later, he's like, dude, we got this. I felt embarrassed for you. I'm like, and I explained to him like, this is why. He's like, oh, he understood. So I had to go find my voice because I was so like just wrapped up in that style was was them. I didn't want to, I thought I had no style. I thought I was like, oh, it was morphing into whatever company I was working for. That, that proved not to be the case, but I had to work that out in my mind. So and one night I was sitting, I was living in Riverside and I heard a bunch of people like, oh, sounds like, are people racing? Like, that's not racing. That's drifting. And I did a quick Google search. And this is December of like 2008. And then like, oh, like four miles away, Adams Motorsports Park, it's got drifting going on three days a week. So the next, and then it was, this was right before Christmas. They were down till the new year. I went out there in January and I met a bunch of people that I end up know I know to this day or I've worked with over the years there and destroyer got adopted by grassroots drifting pretty quickly. Cause at the time there was no brands really um, servicing or speaking to the audience. It was cool. It was, it was a different time. And in the middle of that, it's like two, 2013, I started running into Scott O'Moore. Scotto, Brian Scotto from Hoonigan. Former, former editor-in-chief of Zero to 60 magazine. And it was like rides a donk. Yeah, he did all that stuff. But I met him, I think, 2011. And then after that, Scotto and I would be at the same events. So he would end up hanging out with me more than he'd hang out with the Hoonigans sometimes. Like, he would literally hang out with me, like, for hours. I'm like, okay, it's cool. We just talk, whatever. So in this November of 2014, I joined Hoonigan. Well, your career has led you to to rub elbows with um, a lot of celebrities and not like, you know, not like Hollywood, a list celebrities like we think of, but 
you know, all these, these subculture celebrities that are huge deals. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, like, uh, well, uh, Ken Block, um, rest in peace, Ken Travis Barker. Yeah. 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 I didn't know if we, if you wanted, if you wanted to, to mention that, you know, it, Ken passed away, um, in the start of January and it was, it was sudden and, yeah. and horrible for, uh, everybody around him. Yeah. It sucks. It's the, I don't know. We're going to detour real quick, but yeah, it was, uh, I always saw Ken as like, he's going to be a really old man still ripping or maybe if anything did happen like that, it would be him racing. So for that to happen, like no one's, no one's expecting that. And like, no one wishes that to happen to anybody, but like he had been on fire upside down in his cars. The cars have burned to the ground. He's been in some gnarly wrecks and you just figured out oh, it's race. It's racing. Right. So it sucks. It's all I could think about was like, man, his wife, his kids, like me too. Like that's they're young still. Like you know, so it sucks because. But he was a good dude. He he uh, extended an opportunity to me. I appreciate that. It's kind of hard to talk about right now. Actually, I'm just kind of surprised. Actually, like I'm painting this picture of him right now that I'm gonna give. Oh, I'm gonna donate to. I'm gonna give it to Scott and the Hoonigans and put up what they want. But I started it right after I got the call. So. Yeah, he just had he had this incredible vision for something that no one had done before um, across a number of things, all involving motorsports. And you know, I never met him one-on-one, -on -one, but he was always there in the background. And in, in you know, the last five, six years, he has loomed so large over my, my career and my success. And so it really, when I, I got the phone call and it was um, uh, some, someone at Hoonigan called me up and, like I could, as soon as I answered the phone, I knew something was like really wrong, and I didn't, I didn't expect it to be. I didn't expect it to affect me the way it did for someone that like you know I wasn't personally friends with, but I owe so much to, and it's hard. I worked with him originally. I met him in two thousand and six in the in the green room backstage area of a Blink One A Two show because Travis Barker was doing a a shoe with DC and Ken was at DC. Ken started DC shoes. He did eight ball drawers and then it becoming DC shoes. And that's when I met Ken first time. And when Travis needs to go warm up, I just talked to Ken for a while about shoes, skateboarding, how skateboarding evolved. Cause DC started in the mid nineties. Now it's early two thousands at that time. Skateboard was evolving really quickly. And we just talked about that. And I said, Hey, I'm doing this art show around shoes. And then Ken called somebody and they sent me some shoes and I painted them and I put them in the art show. It was just, and that was 2006, and it was wild to see later on. I'm working for this dude, and because he was talking about, he just had started rallying the year before. I was like, "Well, that's cool," you know. He just wanted to go be a race car driver. I'm like, "That's rad, cool, live." So, yeah, I just, it was just, it was heavy to 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 take that in, but like I said, he, it was he offered me opportunities. And I got to work on a different platform. That's the reason why I left. I made that decision. I could keep doing Destroyer. It had done. It was doing really well. Um, but this was a different. It looked fun, and I wouldn't have to be running my own brand. It's a lot of work to run your own brand. At that point, I was Destroyer was around for seven years. So I was like, okay, I must take a step back. I have my my daughter was just born not too, you know, not too before that really. I mean, I think she was like six months old when I went to Hoonigan. So it was like, okay, I'll go work for somebody. So. But yeah, it's kind of Hoonigan, a team of gearhead creative misfits. Always what I've loved about it. 
but also extremely accepting. Like there was no um, accepting of, of people, cultures and like automotive subcultures and oddity. There's no such thing as like a shitty car mod. You just, that's, you're having fun with it. The goal yeah. is just let's have fun with it. And if it's shitty, it's well, you're, you acknowledge it, but it's because it's fun. I don't. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, <laughs> that's it's a right, good so way. That's a good way to talk about it, or say put it in that perspective. Yeah, it's it was it was fun, and people could relate to it because everyone was in the same thing. It was before it got to be like really expensive builds. It was three hundred dollar cars in a parking lot. Yep. Yes, with the yeah, and that was like the fun of a car, like it, it Torque Stallion, where it, like it looked beat. You knew he'd run that thing. I'm so tired of losing revenue. Ah! Being tired of losing revenue to abandoned carts and lapsed audiences. Of course you are. Did you know that anonymous shoppers who visit your store on their phones can't receive abandoned cart emails from Shopify? (gasps) Pop quiz. What do Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, and Blendjet have in common? They all turn to retention.com to maximize their growth and reclaim lost revenue it's money falling from the sky with retention.com's reclaim solution you can leverage industry-leading identity resolution technology to increase your sms and email flow revenue by up to 10 times we i'm 10xing our list okay like 10x like i'm not even joking onboarding is quick and easy and implementation takes just hours not months Plus, Retention.com's flexible pricing is based purely on incremental performance, so you only pay for what you get. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to grow your Shopify store and reclaim lost revenue. Visit Retention.com to learn more and schedule your demo today. Let's recap. You were born into art. Like, this is a thing you grew up witnessing. Try. You're like, look, I want to pursue it. And unfortunately, uh, academia let you down here. Uh, or it wasn't for you. I mean, it's just, it isn't for everybody. Yeah. That, that's the case. Um, and so you weren't able to pursue it. At, you didn't see anyone pursuing it as like a viable income stream. And so you took a, a regular job and were happy with, I made, you know, I, I make a piece of art a month. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> through your network, through a friend, you're able to get this, this incredible opportunity. It really took a leap of faith in joining as an artist uh, at, at Famous Stars and Straps with Travis Barker, only to have that really take off. And eventually you didn't recognize burnout happening fast enough. You didn't know, and you didn't know how to defend it and defend your time. And you burned yourself out bad, like so bad. It it got you into a a dark, genuinely frightening place for mental health. And you quit what, you know, and in 2008 kind of forces a lot of people into entrepreneurship. So you start this destroyer brand, rediscover your passion for it, really define your style and who you are, explore a whole bunch of stuff and end up discovering like, Hey, I could sell the art that I love direct online is you know, when you go, when you're able to marry like what you love and your skill with something very niche. And in this case, it was drift apparel, which at the time, like that was really a new thing. Like Tokyo drift fast. the Fu- It took a fast and the furious movie to really introduce a lot of us to drifting. And you were lucky to be right near Irwindale and so you're selling in person, which I love early on, even today. Selling in person is great because you can connect with customers. It's easy. Um, you like it's very approachable. Anybody could do it within reason. And so from there, that even lead like just being there leads you to Brian Scotto, mm-hmm. which leads you to Hoonigan and and Ken and and Hurt and all these great guys. Seven years later, you leave Hoonigan. Yeah. 
So why? <laughs> so Hoonigan was always a company like we're always always fast paced and everyone would help out. Like that's just I mean, I come from a generation where you just work to get help get the job done no matter what. So you'd be doing tons of stuff. But it gets to a point where like you have so many responsibilities and so many like responsibilities that would it's just you're doing the work of so many people and it started to affect my health. So my physical health started having some serious issues, which in turn started messing, affecting my mental health. And I had gone through it. I mean, I didn't want to go on meds, so I go out do meditation. But there's certain things like my blood pressure was going bananas. Like it was just a lot. And I shared it, but like at the time, there was no way of really kind of working past it, it seemed like. So it was just my decision. Like, hey, you know what? I'm starting to go to this really dark place again. And I got the tools and I'm doing my best, but there's, you know, this is a machine that just keeps rolling. And it's like, it's not fair for me to go, Hey, can we just stop the machine for a moment? It just, it didn't work that way. So it was just like, I didn't want to get to a point where I'm so far down the rabbit hole again that I'm like, I can't get back, get back out. Excuse me. So I made a decision to leave as being, you know, I helped change that style of that brand. I focused it into a to I focused it and we made great product. One of my questions for is like as an artist, there's a fear of how do I stay relevant? And it sounds like for you, it's recognizing when it's time to move on to a new project or new endeavor. You recognize that this time with with Hoonigan and, and decide to move on. And then you go back to you revive Destroyer. Destroyer's back. Yeah. Your your previous <laughs> your brand from you know ten years prior. Why bring that brand back? I just wanted to keep doing something that I owned. I've been building brands for other people for so long and I enjoy it. Like I'm doing a consulting gig right now for someone and it's exciting. They're small, they're nimble, they're not organized or so getting all the organization. Cause I, you know, it was cool. They reach out to me. Like I have a lot of experience in doing this, so I'm helping them along. And then I get to still do my own thing and I can have an outlet for myself. So destroyers just that, that piece where like I can do, I have an outlet and that's why I'm doing it. So, oh man, after the pandemic had really hit, I made a decision myself going, you don't know, no one's promised tomorrow. And if I don't get these things done, I kept saying, I'll learn how to, I'll start messing with acrylic paints when I'm older and retired. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to wait later on to do 3D. I'm not going to wait to do this because who knows what could happen. So I'd rather just give it a shot and try it. And not, I don't want to be on my deathbed going, I really wish I would have done that. No one sits around their deathbed going, man, I really wish I would have worked more. But in this case, <laughs> I don't want to work more. I want to learn more so I can like show my kids. My kids see me. I'm like, what are you doing now? I'm learning 3D. Oh, that's cool. What are you doing now? I'm painting this. Just showing like there's other things you can do and you can do whatever you want. It's I know it sounds cliche, but you can't really do whatever you want if you just really apply yourself. And there's sometimes like, yeah, it sucks and you fail and that's it. And that's why when I destroyer and my telling, I share a lot. Like when I do the lives, you talk about me doing lives. I like share what's going on. People find it of value. And it, it seems to help. And it just, I'm pulling back the curtain a little bit. And that's kind of how I do it. I don't try and sell super hard. Sharing is the new selling. Like you share why you made this artwork. You tell people like, you give them examples. You show how you do it. You show how you struggle. And then they, they are part of the process and they, they enjoy that and they feel connected to it. And if the message comes through what the intent of the artwork was and it, and it resonates with them, then there you go. That's kind of it. They they see why and they feel, you know, that's why they want to support it. The last five minutes, you've been dropping solid gold. <laughs> the idea, it's like, you're like, hey, I'm not, 
hey, I'm not selling. I'm I'm sharing. Oh, that's brilliant. You're sharing authentically. It's like here. That's how you connect with people. You're being just honest and vulnerable and direct. And that's a lot harder than it sounds. It's much easier to be fake and polished. Um, it's it especially as an introvert, it's harder um, to do. And yet here you've you're accomplishing it. And so like that's your approach to marketing that art is you're going, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here's what happened. Here's the honest truth. And, and here's the story behind it. And this is all this happens through social media. This is all on Instagram, social media. And then I do my newsletter, which the highly engaged people will subscribe to. And I'll share some stuff like that. I do like maybe two newsletters a month. I don't want to do too much because like I'm a small brand. I'm consulting. I'm doing, you know, client work. So it's like, here's some highlights that happened. Like, here's what's coming. And sometimes I'll share. I'll do like, here's a pod. Here's a playlist of like music I'm listening to. I'm in the studio. So like that, you know, it's it's hard because you can't, I mean, yeah, if I have a different, like this hat right here I'm wearing, like, I know people can't see it, but it's like, it's a hat, it's multicam, it's got a high viz, you know, highlighter green logo on it. There, it's just like, I connected it to Cyberpunk 2077, I called it Edge Runners. That's what inspired me by it. It doesn't hit everybody. It's, that's what it was. So like, that's why I shared with it. It's not deep, but I'm giving you a little reason why. Um, so sometimes, yeah, I mean, on social, I do that as much as I can by doing videos. As you know, it's just different. The landscape has changed a lot and it's hard to capture people's attention. So that's the thing is like, as long as I connect with a very core group that's really highly engaged, that's fine. And if they tell their friends, that's how I'm doing it. Because building a small community is way more than having this large, you know, vanity number that a fraction of those people actually see it. So I mean, is it hard to build a community online and also be a self-described introvert? Um, so I've the term introvert has kind of left my vocabulary because I have to like be high energy and go talk to people. I, I learned that literally by going on camera at Hoonigan because before I was straight up like, nope, I'm just going to sit here and do my thing in the back in the background. I remember Scott would said like, you needed to be a part of this. You need to be up front. My first episode by myself was horrible. It was, it was garbage. But then after that, you just get used to it. Like people think it's easy. Like you put a camera in someone's face and you tell them to just go for it. That's not that easy. You have to like be comfortable with yourself. And like, you have to assume a character. I basically, when I do that, I assume a character. I'm like in character. That's what it is. So it is not easy is it, though to do that stuff. For me, like it, it's a character, but it's the character is, is 20% more me. It's like, it's me ramped up. Yeah. I can tell when yeah. you turn it on you start doing your intro, you can tell and your voice like, <laughs> Oh, this is, this is Kurt on the air. Yeah. But yeah, this is like Kurt trademark, but that's a good way to think about it though. Cause that way you're not feeling, cause people get really self-conscious about it, especially artists. There are historically people who just want to be left alone in the, like, I'm just going to sit here and work, do my thing. And some of them get bummed out because people don't know, or they don't care because it's hard to go out there and, Art is a very subjective thing. I do a lot of, I guess, almost pop art stuff or pop inspired stuff. And I've been trying to really focus. I really want to get out of that. But that's a hard thing to do because being skateboarding, stuff like that, and all those pop culture references, it's like what I'm into. So to go be a fine artist is difficult. And I do it occasionally. Your success hinges on being able to put yourself out there. 
And you have to like, you had an audience already, which helped um, from you know, this long career from being at Hoonigan. And from there, a lot of it. So you got to like scream into the void a while to build the audience. And then in that time, I think the fear of like putting yourself out there, especially as an introvert is negativity. You're going to get like, just the, uh, your, your fear is like someone's going to say something awful and biting. And like, you get the drive by comment from an internet troll. You're big enough. Certainly you've seen it, especially, you know, having done anything on YouTube where comments get particularly special. Uh, <laughs> how do you deal with it? That no joke. Sometimes will just be the worst. So I got in this habit because like you want to be, you want to see, everyone wants to see praise. That's just how it is. Everyone wants to be like, oh, it's so great. And I've always been low key like, and you want to, you know, but when those times when people come out there and some people just mean, they're just mean because they're miserable people and they just want to bring other people misery or they just think it's funny because they're just hurting inside. I really believe that. Me too. A lot of people in any space, there are those people who are just keyboard warriors. And they just want to be just being just not there's just gross. They're nasty, whatever. So, yeah, it was really sucked. I remember my favorite one that always remember. It's not my favorite one. It one that really sucks. Like all that guy does is make bumper stickers on a Mac. <laughs> that was one someone's comment. It just stuck through. So I just stopped reading comments after that. All right. So back to art. How do you determine the price of, of selling an art? Like when you making it, you know, there's like materials or cost of goods sold if it's we're, we're doing print on demand um selling a t-shirt or like a reprint how do you figure out the price what's the value here so art is purely what i value it as that's what it is granted there's a cost of it and you can put in like the time it took you to do it but realistically i don't the time has a factor in it but usually it's the value to me and so it's like when i that's what it is. I go like, this is what it is. That's just how it is. Art is a subjective thing and you price it accordingly. I see a lot of artists who don't value their artwork enough. They feel it's not that great and they price it so low and they get bummed out. And then you think about the other side, if you're on the other side, you go, it's so inexpensive. Is it cheap materials? Is it going to, is it going to fade? You know, like, yeah, it changes the, the perception of the value. If it's like, well, if they're offering it that little, you know, what, what am I getting here? So I, I have different tiers of pricing and it's kind of, sometimes I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's experimental or I feel like, you know what? I think this audience is probably going to be more in this price point. And then sometimes it's like, it's also, if you're getting a gallery wrap, it's a lot of labor involved to have someone make it, stretch it, ship it. So it costs more. It's just, it's this thing and it's made here in the States. So it's different. So that's another thing. It's, so it's just subjective. It's like, I feel this is what it's valued at. And here's the thing. Also, I don't want to have it so low that I don't even respect my artwork. Like it's a, it's an intentional thing. It's like picking up a vinyl record and putting it on in the turntable and lifting the arm and listening to it. It's like picking up a VHS tape or a DVD and putting in the machine. Like you're doing this for a purpose. You're buying a piece of artwork to look at it. It's not like an NFT where like you might look at it on your phone if you still have it or whatever, you know, it's, it's a tangible item. And I feel like, People who buy artwork is buying the experience or the shared experience they got when you were creating it and you, you told them the story and why you did it. And that's why they, they, um, they dig it. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, I like that looks cool. But as you get older and you hear those things, like I said earlier, like I just sharing. So 
that's what it is. And people really want to buy it. I know it's not the easiest thing to buy a print that costs, you know, hundred dollars or more. Like I just did that Mia and Vincent from Pulp Fiction. Cause it's one of my favorite, you know, scenes from that movie. And I did a, a double mat of it. It's super great print. It's numbered. I only did two of them. The first one's gone. There's only one left. You're going to be very intentional buying that. Cause you have to go get it framed now. And which I'm going to start offering framing. Cause a lot of people get hung up like, well, the paper one's cool. I'll just stick it to the wall with thumbtacks. Yeah. The double matte one is like the double matte one's cool, but now I got to find a frame. So now I'm going to be exploring framing options. Granted, now you're starting to get really high dollar on some of these larger pieces. But yeah, it's framing done. is you just, not cheap. It's not. But if you're in a position in your life where I, li- I appreciate art, and especially this kind of art, like people, some people still buy like weird painted watercolor pieces to put in their house. You're like, well, what is that about? <laughs> Most of my friends have like car parts hanging on their walls or like big old blow ups of like, like, I don't know, anime characters or comic book covers or skateboards, you know? So it's just my, my age group and people who are you know into this or the younger generation is coming up that appreciates it. It's an investment. That's what it is. It's an investment. Art is an investment that you can leave on and like, you can share that story. Like you can share that with your kids. If you have kids, you're like, yeah, this is this person. This is why it's cool. And this is why they did it. And like, oh, okay. And you can just pass that along. That's what this is. It's just like tangible things that you can pass along that have a story and that mean something to you. May all your upsells be sold out and all your downsells too. Do you know what would make this new year even happier? All the extra revenue you can make with one-click upsell. Zipify One-Click Upsell, a.k.a. Zipify OCU, can increase your Shopify revenue 10 to 15% overnight. One-Click Upsell has made its users an extra $393 million in sales. It's no wonder it's trusted by over 12,000 Shopify merchants. One-Click Upsell helps boost your average order value with targeted upsells and cross-sells. It only takes a few minutes to install the app, launch your first upsell, and start generating 10 to 15% more revenue overnight. To make this an even happier new year, go to zipify.com slash Kurt and start your 30-day free trial. That's Z-I-P-I-F-Y dot com slash K-U-R-T. And to get an unadvertised gift, email help at zipify.com and ask for the Tech Nasty bonus. Tech Nasty. So when it comes to monetizing your work, it's like you sell the original work, but then you also sell printed posters. And you've got, and then in addition to that, there's there's other items that are print on demand. You have a, you do a desk mat that's like all your work. I keep, I have that in my garage and my workbench. I love it. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, that's like often is the background of me screwing around is that that mat. So when it comes to, to monetizing, it's like original work and prints but then you can also turn that stuff into merchandise. Talk to me about that a little bit. So the idea, and this comes from my mentor, Noah Elias, because he does it. I mean, I've taken courses from him. He has books. The idea is when you're an artist, you need to make the art one time and you need to, to, um, to benefit from that artwork. Not like once, not twice, but a lifetime. So like tattoo artists, they can be great at rendering a portrait. They do that work one time. Now they got to find someone else to come in to do something similar every day they want to work. And that's the mentality. A lot of artists are like, oh, I paint this original. I sell the original and that's it. I got to go paint another original or hopefully find someone who wants to commission me to paint original. So the idea, and it's basically comes from doing apparel, like you make the artwork, you reproduce it as much as you can on different, you know, options. So yeah, I'll paint, um, 
a piece and then I can make a print of it. If I feel it's strong enough or I want to real, you can incorporate it into a merch plan. So you can make it a t-shirt or a tote bag. Like I'm going to be doing a full experiment on this with a new illustration. I, my last illustration of 2022, a totally different style. I feel for myself, very vibrant, very colorful, very all over. And I'm, I just get my samples are coming, I think next week. So it's going to be an all over print backpack, a print, a t-shirt a flag, like, and I'm going to try it out. It's very different, but it's, it's going to be, it feeds a need that I wanted to try out. And it's a very different direction, but I've teased the artwork. People are like, this is awesome. Cause it's different and I'm excited about it. So that's the whole thing is like make the art once and then make product that can, that can support you as a creator for, you know, for years, decades. Cause like I stopped destroyer. I reissued t-shirts that I did 12 years ago. And I'm making money off of it right now. And I don't have to do it again. I just like set the file and sent it on demand and people buy it and it's cool. And the same thing with like, just make things like that. Like prints, like I said, it's very, very intentional purchase. T-shirts are something people are more comfortable with. They can still support and like share your artwork. Um, and then other products like that gaming mat, I play games. And when that came available, like, oh, this is awesome. And here's the best part. It's horrible to say this. I've made it for sale. My sample came two days after when I say I already sold like several of them. And I'm like, please say this looks good. It was bad. <laughs> I was excited. I was like really excited. And it turned out great. And people use them like at RC. I take it to RC track with me. I use it for a pit mat. I use it for gaming. People use it for the workbench like you. It, I find if you can find something that people can use in different variety of situations or applications, it's it's they can justify it being in their life. That's another thing. It's like, especially now, I think people are way more aware of like fast fashion and like, just we people buy a lot of stuff. I know we're saying we're, we're on a, a podcast about shopping, but if you do it in a way like I make that on there where my model is probably going to shift a lot more towards on-demand products. So I'm not sitting on boxes of stuff. If no one buys smalls, there's no reason for me to make smalls that are just going to either end up in someone's junk drawer or a landfill or something like that. So it's just being responsible with it. I know that sounds kind of a hippie move, but it's true. And it's just like your partner's, on the back end can fulfill it and you can just keep making things and not be dragged down by that stuff. I'm pretty sure everyone listening to your podcast is already aware of all these things. But to me, it was like a life-changing moment when I found out like, what? Cause I, you and I talked about it. And I'm like, yeah, everything you want to do. I'm like, Oh, I get so excited now when I go look at the back end and like, Oh, there's new things I can experiment with. Cause this is the best way. Otherwise you'd have to front so much money to make a minimum on something that may or may not check with your audience. And it's would suck to be left with that. Cause I previously with destroyer, I had a warehouse. I had so much inventory. Sometimes it's scary when you have like, Oh look, I have like 40 SKUs and it's like two boxes of each SKU. That's a lot of boxes just sitting in a room. Yeah. They end up just sitting in your garage or your basement. I'm like, Oh crap. <laughs> that move was a big deal for me. And I don't know. It's just like I say, like Noah told me make it once and make it work for you for forever and beyond. Like if it's really strong, it could go on to my kids could be like, you know, holding on to it. And like, it's still going because the artwork's there. It's digital. It's not going to go anywhere. And that's it. It's. You see, you know, you said, hey, this may be obvious to people listening, but and it, it, it wasn't obvious to you. It wasn't necessarily obvious to me. And I think part of the difference is the is the curation. Like the mistake I see people make is like, there is so much you can make available using on demand. Um, and, and just in time manufacturing and people go crazy where it's like, I've got this one file 
I am now going to offer 40 different t-shirts with this one thing. And I think like that, it's easy to go all the way too far when the answer is like, you got to curate with like a few careful choices. Like, so if I've got one style, if I've got one, uh, I got one file, how many items am I typically, is John Chase going to typically offer based on that? So that my experiment I'm talking about right now, I have one asset. I'm going to try out, I think five, unique products and we're gonna see what hits because like some of them be like one's a backpack never made a backpack oh no i made a backpack years ago with destroyer i got some open market ones i customized them myself i only made like five of them or something like that i remember i sold the last one i had at formula drift some kid offered me money for it like more than it was retailing for i'm like okay cool took everything out my bag and sold it to him um but that's great because that shows you how you know people were you know fanatical at the time about it and people are really still really excited about it it's just my audience has grown up and they have kids and they have other responsibilities but it was before they didn't you know so one asset i don't know i think i'm going to try five five might be too much it might be three but i'd rather but you have the option to try that be flexible and like and if it didn't work that's fine or you can sit on it and make it a draft and come back later and try a different approach to it maybe it works so selling online does it change your creative process at all? Yeah, because perfect example, like you have to figure out how to make other assets. So like social content, like, okay, I'm going to paint a picture. I'm going to do illustration, illustration stuff. Sometimes I haven't done a time lapse of me doing a vector work. I don't know why I just, I get in the zone and I just kind of just grip through it and just keep going like that. When I paint airbrush stuff, I definitely like to shoot the process because people don't understand how airbrush works. Like, if you really think about it, there is no, there's no cursor. You just have to have muscle memory and know where that, that paint is going to land on that canvas, how far away you are, how much pressure you're using the angle, everything. So when people see it, they're like, like when they, I did it live one time on IG and they're like, Whoa, like, yeah, it's like there's nothing, they don't see nothing coming out. It just shows up on the canvas. You're like, okay. So I want to share that. Um, so yeah, it depends for sure. And sometimes like I like to show the process. Like if I have some hats made domestically locally to me, I like to go by and show it being made and then tell the story. So yeah, you have to get people to see it more as you know, um, you just have to get, you know, have to get there. So making content's the really big key. Like you can, that's great if you make the most amazing stuff, but if you don't really show it and don't share it and people are just like, Oh, and you wonder why when you launch your store and like no one showed up, it's hard. Like you have to get people, everyone now just gets barraged by stuff. You have to break through it. So if you can share a piece of content, like, Oh, that's cool. They may or may not buy it. If they're trying to sell something or you're, you're marketing something like that. But if you stick with them, it sticks in their mind. They, Oh, and they want to follow you or they just check up on you and see what you're doing. Or they subscribe to your newsletter. That's a big deal. You're getting someone to like take notice. And that's like, to me is the, it's acquiring their attention is the hardest thing right now. So the, the big challenge is signal to noise ratio is getting people's attention is getting them to pay attention, um, with that. So what strategies have you tried? What's your, what's your go-to move? Is it, is it just sharing the process and the story and the work just consistently? Yeah, I try to share my process. Um, the ad stuff, I don't have any success in it just because I think my audience gets served so many ads from other similar or other just in general they get served a lot of ads because the demo i'm in 
probably just get so much stuff. It just kind of, you know how it is. It becomes part of like the landscape. You don't even notice it. Um, I've had sometimes it work really well. I'm going this year in 23. I think I'm going to try and approach it differently, but more consistently. And then maybe that would be a big, that'll be the breakthrough for me. Like put together we'll like a content calendar, content calendar and ad strategy and just be very um, consistent on that. Cause I don't do ads really. I tried it a couple times. One time it did okay. The other times it just did nothing. So I could imagine, I mean, you could take like, you've got these great, those great um, time-lapse videos of like airbrushing something and you'll see those go viral uh, on, on TikTok, on reels. Would, if you had like a successful time-lapse of you, you know, airbrushing Frankenstein's monster, something that's like, it's Mm -hmm. iconic. People could connect with it. Would just like promoting that or running that as an ad work. I think it's what the strategy will be for me because, like, I since I don't make product really, I make I'll make a print of it, but it's not something most accessible, like accessible for someone to purchase, you know. Like, and sometimes I don't even say like I don't do a CTA because like it's really you know how it is finicky. Like, if you keep doing to make call to actions in a social environment, people just feel like oh, you're just trying to get me to buy stuff all the time. So, so the idea from Noah was like you do like three shares, then an ask. So just share, 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 share. Hopefully, people are still following along. Then you do the ask. The ask can be in a newsletter. The ask can be on a story. Sometimes it's in the main grid post, you know, and I try and balance it enough so it's not constantly asking because I know I have followed some people. I'm like, oh, my God, I get it. I get it. And it kind of and I get it. I understand because I'm a fan and you don't want to be on your fans so much. They're just like, dude, or followers, fans, followers, people are supporting you. So that's the thing. It's like I don't mess with TikTok and I probably should do it more. That's the thing. It's like. I have some people in my household that are on there so much. They're the people who are are adding to that massive number of minutes watched (laughs) every month. And it's just, that's a really different landscape. It is. Different style. And some people told me like, that's behind scenes. That's where you show your behind the scenes stuff. And Instagram is where you show you have stuff for sale. And it's like, and then Facebook is this. I'm like, that's so much stuff to try and deal. Like I'm trying to like make things. And I wish, and there's the other option of like Twitch. People are like, you should just go on Twitch and do it because it's more friendly for that, you know, that interaction and showing the process. But like, do people want to watch me paint for six hours straight? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. And don't if know. they, see. but if they, even if they do, are those the people who want to buy? Yeah, that's another thing. That's like, you're serving an audience who just want to see art. And because Twitch isn't really known for art as like people are on there. It's definitely not as big as gaming or even car stuff now. It's just trying to find the audience. So I don't know, like I'm going to try ads this year in a different way. I'm going to try and do TikTok, but like, it's just so hard to juggle. I mean, you could do a content calendar if you want, but man, <laughs> you have to be like, today I'm going to shoot this. Like right now I'm, I'm packing orders that I got last night and now another one. And then I go, you know, and then I got to do, I got to return this call because I'm for consulting gig. I got to return this call. And then I want to work on 3D today. I want to work on this Ken painting. I want to work on um, some new destroyer designs. This is my Friday. And it's like most people are trying to ramp out. And this weekend, like, I want to spend time with my kids. And then I want to like work on more 3D stuff. And I want to work on my a new RC. Like I'm into rock crawling. I got to finish building my rig for that. Like it's just trying to have a normal life. It's hard. I mean, I guess for a normal life, I should just get a normal job. And just be like, cool. I just go to work and I come home and I just zone out. <laughs> I think it's a a good place 
to wrap it up because you've given so much here. You have been really generous with your time and uh, open and honest about your experience. Um, it's powerful and motivating. I don't know. I, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> and I want to know, as my final question, what advice would you give to someone just starting out selling artwork online in 2023? Um, man, in 2023, I would say since things are opening up again, as long as things don't go backwards, I would say, cause I was really into like, Oh man, my launch, like I can just chill online. Cause everyone was so used to, especially after the pandemic got everyone locked in, like online was like the way to go. I got so, cause my goal of 22 was to do designer con in person and just be there with a really janky setup. I like basically, uh, an artist, you know, convention, I would say start something small, be real, real realistic in your expectations, set obtainable goals. Don't make a lot, like, don't make a huge main in every day. Maybe just take a little attack, little chunks of it and then try and do stuff in person and get out of your comfort zone. Because I mean, there's people you see at a show or a convention artist alley where they don't engage with anyone walking by, or even if they look at their stuff, it's, it's hard. So if you're an artist, be open to share. Cause here's the thing. I, you probably read in the books, people don't buy it because it's, they buy why they don't buy it because you did it. They buy the why. And like, I was talking to people and I would share why I'm doing something and they had no intentions of buying anything because I didn't fit their demo, but they buy a sticker or they would get something else. or they give it as a gift. And it wasn't like, and, it, and if they didn't, I wasn't bummed. I got to interact with someone and they took my, my little flyer and that person down the road might become like, you know, might purchase or they might just want to be involved or like share with someone else. They know that might be more engaged. That was it. So I'd say get out of your comfort zone, have expectations that are, you know, that you can, you can actually accomplish. And if you don't, don't be mad about it. Don't beat yourself up. It's hard to do when you're artists and then just interact with people and just be happy with a small, highly engaged audience. Like I have friends that have huge, massive, presence on online and they get to talk to a ever so small sliver of it and it works for them but i see other people who are a really small following that have such an engaged audience that it's, they're doing just as well if not better so vanity metrics don't matter just have fun and just go along with the process where i mean phenomenal advice <laughs> but more importantly, I need I need some John Chase art in my life. Where can I get it? Oh, johnchasestudios.com. J-O-N, no H. johnchasestudios.com. Um, I also forward Destroyer, which is D-S-T-R-O-Y-R, no E's, dot com. That's where it's at. And then Instagram's jchase7452, where I just try to get back into posting. Since the early beginning of this year, it's been kind of heavy. I just barely started getting back into it. But yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at and that's where stuff's happening. And my next drop will hopefully be soon. So the next, my next drop will be very art specific. The one following will be very car specific. And I'm going to try and balance between that so I can make people who are following me stoked because I have a fan base that just likes art. There's a fan base that just likes cars and there's that odd fan base that likes both. And those are the people who are like, oh, cool. You're happy with anything like I produce because they're just really down to help that's it and i'm really i appreciate everyone so i meet them or talk to them i am thankful for them 
And if, and if, if they can't support in a way of purchasing something, if they share what I'm doing, just as happy with that. So there you go. I appreciate it. John, this has been uh, phenomenal. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, dude. Stoked. Super stoked. And to our, our listeners, I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So please join our Facebook group on Official Shopify Podcast Insiders and talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. The Unofficial Shopify Podcast is brought to you by Loop. Loop is a returns management platform that makes returns profitable and stress-free for you and your shoppers. Loop offers automated returns, exchanges, and store credit options to lower costs and increase revenue. Do you want to offer at-home pickup or boxless drop-offs? Need to lower return costs or increase repeat purchases? How about all of the above? That's what's possible with Loop. Loop delivers customized returns management solutions for Shopify merchants of all sizes, like Studs, Princess Polly, Code Epoxy, to turn returns into returning customers. Find out why thousands of Shopify merchants choose Loop to manage their returns at loopreturns.com. That's loopreturns.com.